Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. China is really big and really old and almost always extremely important. It seems a little unnecessary to point it out, but when you consider how familiar most of the English-speaking world is with its history, the question becomes less who cares and more why don't we care nearly enough. The past century and a half has seen China go through some of its most turbulent changes, which is a high bar to clear for Chinese history, but the story is often simplified or even ignored. So what exactly happened to transform China from a powerful centralized imperial power into the largest communist nation on earth? Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Gary Hallman. Hello. Welcome back, Gary. Good to be back. Uh, We're going to be talking today about, uh, what are we even going to call this topic? The Chinese Civil Wars, the Chinese Communist Revolution, I suppose. Um, It was kind of a struggle to know where to start. Gary, I've made a mistake. I've made, I've made a huge error. Um, and it's a thematically appropriate error, which is that I completely underestimated Chinese history. Yeah, I remember when you called me up and you're like, yeah, this is definitely going to need to be more than a one episode show. So yeah, that's the, uh, that's the, that's the lead here. Instead of our usual two, uh, parter, we're going to do three. By the way, also this episode's going up kind of late because I had to get my head around all this stuff. Originally, this idea for a topic actually came from a listener, a guy named Michael, who wrote in, by the way, this dude listened through my entire back catalog in about four months, which is incredible. Um, he had a lot of suggestions, by the way. But one of them was um, specifically the, the Cultural Revolution in China. And I went, well, that sounds great. Let's talk about Mao. Sounds like a good time. But we can't really talk about Mao without talking about the revolution. And then you can't really talk about the revolution without talking about the Chinese Republic. And all of a sudden... We're, we're back about a century and a half. Well, I'm, I am ready. Like, you know, there, there's only so many snippets of, of, you know, you, you hear the, uh, the inflection points, you know, throughout our, our history of what we're taught about China, but sure. Everybody knows there's just such a deep, rich history there, but we only really skim the surface of like whenever something really bubbles up to the surface, but there's, I know absolutely nothing about what caused everything to happen in the first place. So I'm, right. I'm very interested. Okay, cool. Well, let's go over like the, um, like the three sentence version of what I was taught, which I'm hoping will, if nothing else, give people a little bit of context into, uh, as to why I thought this was a very possible topic in the usual two parts. I'm looking for forgiveness or something. I don't know what it is exactly, Gary, but oh boy. Um, usually what you hear about China is 
in general. The imperial system collapses early in the 20th century. Uh, it's replaced by a republican system. And this Republican system is in place for a couple of decades until after World War II, um, there's a communist revolution and it overthrows the, the Chinese Republic and uh, Mao puts into place the, the Chinese party or the, the Communist Party of China, which, uh, you know, ends up uh, uh, resulting in the government that they have today. And I kind of look at that and go like, yeah, that should be we should be able to spend two hours out of that. No problem. Yeah. Um, Nope, there's more to it than that. The, the real the real issue is as much as I want to talk about, you know, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution and all of that, you can't really talk about the Communist Revolution uh, separated from that Republican period because I'm not sure if there's a dozen different revolutions here or if it's one long revolution or maybe both, but you would be coming in halfway through the story so egregiously that I, I don't think we can really in good faith do that. So we better start off from something resembling the beginning, which is really hard to do in a civilization where, uh, you know, there's there's a more or less unbroken line going back 3000 years of history. But mm -hmm. we got to start somewhere. I did a topic with uh, Yumiko actually at one point uh, on tea, and we talked a lot more about you know, empire than we did necessarily tea, although tea was a, a central figure in all of it. And we did talk about the opium wars quite a bit. And that's kind of where I'd like to start all of this. Okay. Um, the opium wars, uh, the, the very short version of it was, it was essentially that, uh, Britain would have liked the ability to sell opium to the, the Chinese population. It was illegal there. Uh, they found some reasons to go to war over it, hoping to be able to sell said opium and make a lot of money. In, in general, the European powers didn't have a lot of control in China in this era, and the Opium Wars are very early days of trying to open direct trade with these powers. And you'll see kind of later in history with, uh, you know, for example, Japan, mm -hmm. they're going to kind of meet these powers halfway in sort of a, they see what's coming and want to avoid what Europe is capable of doing sort of way. China is where they find out what the Europeans are capable of doing when they want to trade and you say no. So the Qing dynasty has been in control of China since uh, the mid-17th century, since uh, 1644. And by the 19th century, all of this stuff starts coming down around their ears kind of at the same time. Um, starting with the first opium war in 1839, it's, it's 1839 to 1842, and it's about trying to open up ports, uh, allowing British ships into trade, uh, allowing the, as, as I said, the sale of opium to the, to the Chinese population. Um, so sorry to jump in there. Yeah, yeah. Are there competing factions here that the British feel like they, they need to make this happen? Like what are the kind of other European players or are they kind of just first to market, so to speak. Uh, closer to the second. Uh, there are other players in the area, and there certainly will be more as time progresses, but they're sort of the first ones to crack into southern China, and that's largely because of the tea trade, um, which is which is why I referenced that episode. It, it really is helpful to listen to um, before this if you have a chance, but if not, we'll do our best to explain everything here anyways. Um, this uh, this war ends in, in British victory, uh, and... It, uh, it also results in something that's known as the Treaty of Nanjing. And this is the first of what's known as the unequal treaties. And it's known as this because uh, the terms of the treaties are very unequal. It's self-explanatory. But the point is that the Chinese are forced to give up a lot. They're, they're forced to open up certain ports. They're forced to give control of these ports over to the British uh, for trade. They're forced to uh, pay monetary reparations to the British. 
um, for really, in reality, very small damages to to the British army. But you know, the British won; they can put whatever terms they want on right. it. And it's it's really made clear in these wars that, especially the British Navy, um, but but in general, the British forces are, are head and shoulders above what the Chinese are able to bring to the table. The Chinese Imperial Army is not really what you would expect from. Uh, a world power at this period in time, mostly because we're used to talking about um, European history, where military might is really core to power uh, power dynamics between powers, right? Uh, between uh, great powers in Europe, in general, the Chinese power is based more in um, sort of administrative ability, the ability to uh, govern rather than necessarily uh, govern with force. Um, it's seen as sort of two sides of a coin that they prefer, uh, uh, you know, uh, civil service over military in terms of keeping the peace. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they don't really have that like strong centralized army under, uh, the emperor at this point in time. Now, does geography play a point in this just because they're just such a huge country? Yeah, absolutely. You know what? Let's, let's take a moment to talk a little bit about some of the particularities that we need to keep in mind when we're talking about China, because you're right, China is huge and China is uh, geographically diverse. It's hard to get around in China. There's lots of desert, there's lots of mountains. Regions are very, very different. And you wouldn't necessarily get the impression if what you're used to is the the messaging from modern day China, but China is also like very, very different within China. You'll, you'll have this kind of picture of sort of a monolithic government that speaks for uh, a billion plus people. But in reality, if you're if you're inside China, the, the rivalry between provinces is almost as uh, fierce as the rivalry between like all of China and other countries. Right. It's, it's quite different. And there's there's uh, a lot of different languages there are a lot of different cultures. And for a lot of Chinese history, it's been about trying to find ways to unite all of these uh, groups rather than sort of this single country known as China. The fact that the Qing have managed to do that for so long uh, is, is kind of remarkable. It's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of an oddity in Chinese history. But there is still a lot of this regionalism beneath the imperial, imperial structure. There's a lot of kind of sending governors to look after provinces and then expecting those provinces to sort of run themselves a little bit. Um, so they're semi-autonomous. Yes. Another quick note. I'm going to do my best on pronunciation here. Oh, I'm, I'm going to butcher everything. I apologize in advance. This, this one's this this is a rough one. There's a lot of sounds that just don't exist in English. Um, the other is- issue, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, um, is, is how Chinese words are written in English. The current system is known as pinyin, and it's got its issues. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of written one way and pronounced completely another way if you're expecting English pronunciations of, of you know, vowels and, and consonants. Uh, there is also, it was put in place in the 50s, like very like deliberately to try and make it easier. There was a system before that known as Wade Giles, and that one is even worse. <laughs> um, but the trouble is most of what we're going to be talking about happens before the 1950s. And so a bunch of these figures have names spelt in the old system or the new system. Sometimes they flip-flop back and forth. It, it's just a nightmare. So we'll do our best, but yeah, we'll see. Okay, let's give it a shot. So back to the 19th century. So we've got the Opium War. It ends in the Treaty of Nanjing. Um, it's a real blow to uh, you know Chinese power on the world stage. Up until this time, it's really important to remember just how dominant China is in you know world uh, uh, trade, especially right. Um, we talk about the Silk Road. That's where it starts. 
after the first opium war then we get into a stalemate war against the sikh empire uh so they managed to like they don't manage to beat the sikh empire in in warfare again really showing this this uh issue with their their armies it's not up to snuff in, in the modern war the sikh empire of course, being used to fighting British forces. And so right. they had a t- chance to kind of toughen themselves up. Yeah, definitely. One of those conditions uh, that I forgot to mention in the un, uh, the unequal treaties was that they required China to accept Christian mis- missionaries, hoping to convert as many people in China as possible. And this backfired probably the most spectacularly I've ever seen missionaries backfire in history, which is saying that's, something. That's kind of a bold statement. <laughs> In 1850, uh, a rebellion starts, known as the Taiping Rebellion, and it is led by uh, a man named Hong Xuchang, who has like the second most delusional story for himself I've ever heard, in that he believed that he was the brother of Jesus. Okay. He wasn't Jesus himself, just his brother. <laughs> but this man is like heavily influenced by these Christian missionaries. He has become convinced that he is a son of God, not the usual one, but, but one of them, and he uh, leads uh, this this uprising in China that turns into a 14-year-long civil war. It is quite likely the bloodiest civil war that's taken place in the modern era, era possibly ever. There's something in between 20 to 30 million casualties out of all Holy of this. Holy crap. It is monumental. It is huge. I had never... I, I've heard of it before. I didn't realize the scope. So is is this guy alive the entire time yeah. during the Civil War? Yeah, he's killed quite near the end, and that's a big factor in the end of it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 huge. That's that's a lot of deaths. Okay, so what, what were kind of some of the other underlying features of this? Because usually this is, you know... A lot of it is to do with um, the instability and unrest that's... Uh, um, coming out of the demonstration that your government is unable to protect you. Like government's supposed to do a couple of very key right. things, right? Like there's a few fundamental things that they're supposed to take care of. So yeah, you can complain about your taxes and whatever, but like if your government isn't providing protection for your borders, uh, preventing foreign intervention, things like that, there's some significant problems there, right? And in a system that is somewhat fragmented like China's with the, with disparate provinces, you're gonna have some anxiety about the amount of imp- uh, of European intervention and you're gonna be looking for somewhere to put it now one thing that you should know about the Qing dynasty is that they are not um, from the most dominant ethnic group in China which is the Han Chinese right they are from a region that by this time in, in history is being called Manchuria, which is probably a word you've heard a lot and probably don't know a ton about if you're anything like me. Yep. Manchuria is actually kind of a made up name. Um, the specifics of like what the borders of Manchuria are, are all pretty hazy. Largely it's been talked about as an autonomous region, largely because other powers have been looking to get a slice of it. But Manchuria is basically the most Northeastern chunk of China, sort of, uh, North of where, uh, Korea is. Okay where it borders on uh, Russia. Russia and Japan have traditionally wanted some of Manchuria. Uh, Manchuria is actually a, a, a Japanese origin name. Okay. Yeah. So anyways, the Qing dynasty is Manchurian in origin. And there's always been this sort of sense of, I mean, when times were good, it was never a problem. But when times start going bad, it's kind of like, well, they're outsiders. Our, our issues are because we're not being... 
loyal to the, the ethnic roots of yeah, the majority. Yeah, we're not being ruled by real Chinese, quote, 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 lots of scare quotes here. And it becomes really easy for a charismatic leader, which Hong Chushan was, to basically go, why not me instead? I am the brother of Jesus, after all. So you get a lot of these, um, you get a lot of these Han, ethnically Han uh, provinces going like, yeah, absolutely, let's let's follow this guy. He seems to know what he's doing. But yeah, it is it is absolutely. You're right. It's not just about this uh, religious uh, reasoning. It's this underlying uh, tension, and we're going to continue seeing that um, for the next little bit. In the midst of the Taiping Rebellion, the Second Opium War comes up. So the government's already dealing with this uh, this rebellion, and the British are back for more. They're going, listen, we want to sell more opium than we have been so far, and these treaties aren't unfair enough, so let's go a second round with predictable results. It, it, it's ended with the Treaty of Tianjin. Again, it's a lot more about trade rights, uh, which ports are open to them. We don't need to get into the details, but you have European powers just chipping away. You also start getting the Dutch in there. You start getting the Germans in there, taking different ports, gaining sort of trade monopolies on ships coming in or going out of these ports. This is the era when you see uh, uh, control of Hong Kong going to the British. Okay. There's a war with France, 1884 to 1885. Um, this is actually where the French uh, gain influence in Vietnam. It's a again a defeat for China against these these powers. Uh, one of the one of the things that the the Qing had tried to do to deal with this civil war that came up was basically order every single province to raise an army that they could use to fight back against uh, the Taiping rebels, and. They did so, and they raised a lot of armies. Like the, the, this is a, a time of heavy militarization for China. Okay, but normally, what happens when you raise armies like this is you would have a somewhat separate military core from the government. You would have things like rotating uh, commands. You would have com uh, uh, officers rotating uh, assignments. You would have units rotating through um, different areas to basically try and build both cohesion within the unit itself and to prevent too much personal loyalty. Right. That's a thing that the Chinese did not do. And so instead of having like one Imperial army that is fighting for China, capital C China as a whole, what you end up with is a bunch of little armies that are personally loyal to a small number of officers who are likely personally involved with the governorship of these provinces. This is how you get warlords. Yeah, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it sure is. But they did the job of suppressing the Taiping Rebellion, so so far so good. They're just still not up to snuff with, for example, tangling with France. 1895, you have the Sino-Japanese War. So China against uh, Japan. This is largely over control of Korea. But at this point in time, uh, again, I'm going to reference another uh, episode, but the, the, the Meiji Restoration is well under underway. And Japan is very quickly modernizing, and the way Japan does this is basically by going to everybody else on each thing and seeing how they do it, and then picking whoever's doing it the best and copying their version of it while, you know, adding their own uh, innovations to it. Germans have the best school system. We're doing school like Germans, you know, uh, even down to the ship design, right? British have the best navy. Yeah, but Let's like British have the them. best British have the best hulls and the Germans have the best guns, so we're putting German guns on British hulls. Like they're they're down to every detail. And 
it really puts them far ahead in this era for uh, for a lot of different reasons. But when you have a, uh, a Western style conscripted army with a brand new modern style Navy going up against a pretty archaic Chinese army and Navy, it's not even close. It's pretty humiliating for China. All of this continues to like wear away at the 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 population's perception of um, the Qing Empire or Imperial family's ability to uh, appropriately rule Japan. What's more, uh, China. Japan, sorry, China. Uh, what's more, China's been more or less ruled by one person for a really long time. Not in practice, but this former emperor's wife, uh, the Empress Dowager uh, Cixi, has been kind of playing puppet with her children and her children's children, telling them how to rule, orchestrating coups against them when they're not doing what she wants. She's getting older. Her way of doing things isn't working well. She's been doing this since like the 1860s. And so while fresh uh, rulership is coming through, it's not really shining through in like their It's just different bodies. The yeah, spirit yeah. of the of everything hasn't changed. Exactly. Yeah. All of this kind of culminates in uh, the Boxer Rebellion. 1899 to 1901. Um, do you know why it's called the Boxer Rebellion? No, but this is definitely one of those few things you do hear a lot about. It's it's covered right. pretty thoroughly in like cinema and yeah, yeah, it's a pretty turbulent period. We're not going to spend much time on it, but what I will say is that it is a very common thing when an oppressed people kind of hit a breaking point to see some sort of traditionalist nativist uprising. And that's what you see in the Boxer Rebellion. Now, it's it's known as the Boxer Rebellion because the people who started off are actually, um, they're martial artists. They're members of a, a society known as the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. And they believe, or at least profess to believe, that no Western weapons can hurt them and that they'll be able to defeat um, British armies, uh, French armies, with nothing but their fists. And this gets translated in all the Western press as Chinese boxers. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's an amazing name, by the way. Chinese boxers or the righteous and harmonious fists. Cause the first one, yeah. man, it's so good. Um, basically what ends up happening is that the, uh, the, the Imperial family is put in a difficult place because on one hand, what the, what the boxers are actually fighting for here is, they want less foreign intervention in their country. They want to drive out the Europeans. They want to return to traditional practices. They want to get rid of these uh, uh, Christian missionaries. And the Europeans are going, you know, well, what's so bad about missionaries? Well, they just caused a, you know, tens of millions of deaths right. inadvertently, obviously. But you can understand how these people might be a little wary of Christianity after the Taiping Rebellion. You know, oh, what's the big deal with some trade? Well, I mean... You caused two wars over being able to sell an illicit, sell like opium, twisting which, our arms into selling an illicit substance that is ruining our society. Like there is actual real societal collapse due to opium addiction in this era because the British are forcing this sale. Um, you know, their their concerns are pretty valid here. On the other hand, as soon as this all starts up, all these European powers kind of go, hey, hey, what's going on over here? What's all this then? They come marching in and they're like, hey, you know, uh, Empress, if you want our help putting down these these rebels, we're happy to help you out. 
we're we've got a bunch of armies here ready to go and they all send a whole bunch of forces in because this all starts at like uh um consulates in capitals right okay and so they start off as like defending their own consulates but then it's kind of like well we can we're here anyways basically just gives them a pretext to absolutely yeah and the 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 imperial family buckles they do uh they they end up uh authorizing this uh, international force uh to uh help them suppress the boxers and it's kind of a it's a damned if you do damned if you don't situation right if the imperial family had not accepted their help these armies would have just attacked them and overthrown them and there are plenty of inroads on that. There's but now you're tainted by the Europeans. Well, exactly. So what are you what are you supposed to do in their situation? They they were there. There was a, this was a no win situation, and I think it goes without saying that as a result of all of this, by by the turn of the 20th century, um, anti Qing sentiment is at an all time high. It's really understandable why. Let's talk about Sun Yat Sen. Sun Yat Sen was a well-educated doctor, a politician, a revolutionary. He was born in 1866 in Guangdong, which is southern China. It's very clearly Han. Uh, he was, you know, he spent some time in the West. He spent some time in the United States. Okay. Uh, he uh, really admired Abraham Lincoln. Um, he, he he kind of did a similar thing to what um, we talked about with the Meiji Restoration, which was he kind of sampled from all over the world trying to see... Who does what the best? Yeah, where where China can go from here? Because he did believe that uh, the Qing were not doing everything that they could. There were some small attempts at uh, revolution or, or sorry reformation um, by uh, the the Qing. Uh, I mean, there's you know they make some educational reforms, they make some small governmental reforms. They uh, even offer to put in sort of a representative body. But when they do, there's only 13 members and nine of them are Qing family members. The The president that they put in is uh, uh, related to the royal family. He's, he's actually a prince. <laughs> and it's kind of like, okay, well, that's not really what a president is. That's not really what a prime minister is. So, you Yeah, know. it's not exactly power sharing. Yeah. And I mean, this is an era, too, where... You know, you're watching the you're you're in the middle of watching the collapse of of uh, multiple large empires. The Russian uh, Empire is kind of teetering on its last feet. The Ottomans, the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, all are in terrible trouble. There's definitely this idea that like maybe there's got to be a better way to do this. Well, and you got to wonder, you know, at least those people who are in the upper echelons of societies, like they do see other competing, you know, the travel is available to go to other Mm -hmm. places yeah and i can only imagine going from one place to going to america or london or Mm -hmm. paris or something and just seeing what a a striking difference it must have been Mm -hmm. absolutely sun yat-sen in particular advocated for uh a chinese republic he believed that was the best way to go he uh founds a group in uh, 1904 known as tong which had the express goals of number one driving out the Qing. Mm-hmm. They're not doing a good enough. Let's let's take back our uh, a good enough job. Let's take back our government. Number two, uh, what he called restoring the glory of China, which is basically let's stop letting all these foreign powers push us around. And number three, distribute land equally. He felt that there's a lot of land in China. A lot of it is being taken up by 
uh, very wealthy people and not enough is going to the peasants. Let's see what we can do about As that. As is tradition. Yeah, of course. I mean, land distribution comes up for a very good reason in all of these refer- uh, these revolutions. It's usually a pretty big problem by the time this stuff comes to a head, right? He also comes up with these three principles, um, actually based on, uh, at least uh, some sources have suggested, based on the Gettysburg Address. Okay. Um the three principles are known as nationalism, democracy, and welfare. But we should be specific about like what he means by that. Nationalism is of the people, which is this idea that like it should be about creating a national identity. It's not nationalism in the in the you know our our usual. It's a more kind of, ethnic kind of flavor to it. It's this idea of rather than personal you know devotion to a personal sovereign sovereign, let's develop a national sovereignty, a national identity. This idea of ourselves as a people that is bigger than just uh, you know you being Tibetan or you being Han or you being Mongolian, be Chinese. That can right. be a, a unifying factor. So that's of the people, by the people, democracy. Uh, he believed that representation in government is the only way to make people uh, invested enough in that idea of a Chinese uh, identity um, that it'll actually stick. Because if people don't have that investment in in uh, their government, then um, they're not going to feel personally invested in building that larger society. Right. And uh, for the people being welfare but welfare being that listen the state has to take care of people and it's not doing that right now personal safety yes education Mm -hmm. exactly now there's going to be a lot of argument over specifically what this guy meant by these three pillars because uh he's going to be claimed as a founder both by um the chinese republic and by the communist uh chinese party which is kind of a not a thing you see all that often. Right. But a lot of that is because his ideas change and grow over time, right? There are other revolutionary groups out there, though, uh, including anarchist ones, including communist ones. Communism is very hot right now. All the rage. <laughs> you, you might have heard of it. Um, but we're still pre-Bolshevik revolution here. You just have a lot of, like, just under the surface simmering ideas. This is when, you know, uh, um, this is when Lenin is like, he, he's only five or six years away from like rolling into Moscow on that train and, and, and kicking the whole thing off. Right. Right. So it's, it's a really well-known idea. And, and there are groups who believe that that would be the best thing for China. You know, I, I don't want to get too uh, far into this, but the idea of China being a, a Confucian culture is really important here. Um, I'm not very well qualified to go in on all of that, but you really have to understand that collectivism is baked right into that culture. That is something that is important to these people on a cultural level. Um, this idea Societal of look, harmony. And- yeah, exactly. Looking after each other. This idea of putting society before the individual. All of that is like very, uh, very present in all of that. And, and it's a lot of the reason that um, they've lasted as long as they have under a very authoritarian government where it's seen as as long as the uh, as that authority is fulfilling their end of the uh, or their obligations i should say um then not rocking the boat is the most important thing yeah there's also foreign involvement in all of this because there are invested parties that would very much like to see the chinese government fall it would be good for them chaos Um, works to their advantage yeah absolutely you've got um you know in 1904 1905 you have uh uh the russo-japanese war right japan being the first non-european 
power to de- defeat a European power in, in centuries. And it was a pretty convincing victory if I... Absolutely. Yeah. And that all begins over access to Manchuria, which is Chinese territory. I mean, like, not exactly, but they're trying to build railroad to Vladivostok, which is, you know, a warm water port on the Pacific. The, the, the Russians really want it to be able to sail their navies. The Japanese really want to block that. Uh, it's, it's this whole thing. And, and, and it's all centered around that region of China that Japan is so interested in. They're willing to risk war with China again to go up against Russia to defend it. It's this mess of a situation. So, yeah, Russia wants to see a destabilized uh, Chinese power. It makes it easier for them to gain access to the Pacific. Japan absolutely wants a a destabilized Chinese government um, to the point that there are well-documented foreign operatives, like Japanese operatives working in China to destabilize the government. They're known as the Black Dragon Society. They're working to create... (laughs) <laughs> these are some no lie like it just it makes for such a gripping tale of history that is that is so that is an actual real thing that happened the black dragon society so they wanted manchuria and they are trying to create this distance between manchuria and the rest of china they're hoping that if enough people are angry at the government they will um uh, not only overthrow the government but if japan comes in and takes manchuria they'll see it as that's fine because that's only happening to the Manchurians. It's not happening to real China. Right. Hmm. The period between 1901 and 1911 is full of uprisings. Sun Yat-sen himself personally was involved in as many as 10. They just kept getting put down by the government, but each time they're getting a little bit more and more uppity. So at this point is the, are the foreign powers involved in, you know, are, are they doing the same kind of thing, offering their assistance to help put down, or is it very much these are more the imperial powers are, are putting down these? Yeah. So the the imperials had uh, created one of these armies during the Taiping rebellions, known as the Beiyang Army, and that was the imperial version of this. Like everybody's pulling their weight. Gotcha. Army, and it's huge, and um, that's involved in a lot of these um, suppressions. Mm-hmm. So they're able to more or less keep a lid on it yep. as long as it stays regional each time. Until 1911, on the 11th of October in Wuchang, there's an uprising that uh, succeeds in capturing the entire city from Qing forces. They actually take over the entire city and it is seen as a flashpoint by the rest of the country. Finally, somebody has stood up to the Qing and Broken won. through. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's this little spark that lights off all of these other little uh, rebellions. And this is known as the Xinhai rebel, uh, uh, revolution, sorry. Uh, Xinhai, just re- uh, referring to the year actually in the, in the uh, Chinese Zodiac calendar. Okay. But we, we can't even possibly begin to get into all of these little uh, rebellions. Some of them are about restoring uh, Han rule in China. Some of them are about that, you know, okay. driving out the Manchurians. Some of it is about local independence. We've had enough of any of this. We're going to make a go of it alone. Some of it are not even really re- related to rulership so much as there's some issue with local authority where you see the population rebelling against the local government rather than, you know, the local government it's rebelling against the It's just a free-for-all brawl at this point. Anybody who has enough of a grievance is willing to pick up a weapon and fight. And it's chaos. It's, it's, it's not something that the government can keep a hold of. In general, again, because we can't get into all of this, it goes a couple of ways. In the 
south-ish. It's not really south. It's it's more um, we're, we're talking about Nanjing, which is uh, near Shanghai, if yep. that helps. Sun Yat-sen actually proclaims uh, a provisional government in opposition to the Qing dynasty. He proclaims a Chinese republic and basically says, whoever wants this direction for China, whoever wants to bring China into the 20th century, join me. And it's actually quite successful. It's quite popular. It's seen because of those those rallying cries. It's seen as a as a very popular alternative to the Qing. This is a this is ruled by the Han. It is ruled by the people. All of that good stuff that's resonating everywhere in the world at this point in time. So at this point, a lot of these local warlords that we've kind of talked about mm-hmm. are they kind of seeing that the momentum has swung to the other side, sort of, and to some extent. And he is getting some support militarily. But the other thing that's happening is that in the north, there's been a bit of a turn. You know, we keep talking about the Qing as like this this kind of monolithic thing. Cixi has died at this point, and the emperor is a five-year-old boy okay. named Puyi, uh, also known as the Shuangtong Emperor. He's five. <laughs> he can't do anything. And the Beiyang army that we talked about, its most prominent commander, uh, a man named Yuan Shikai, has been sitting out a lot of these suppressions, claiming that there was something wrong with his foot. He had some sort of foot ailment. Uh huh. <laughs> you hear that a lot with world leaders. Yeah, it's history. weird. It's weird. Yeah. Um, he decides to take this moment of of national rebellion. He goes out. He claims the Beiyang army. He says, "Swear fealty to me." Basically, they do. The government no longer has uh, an army devoted to the imperial house, and he just takes control of northern China. He just owns it now. It's his. It's the biggest army in China, and it's just his. So you have the north under the control of the Beiyang army, and you have the south, and again, this is a wild uh, uh, generalization, but you have the south that's uh, uh, swearing to... Uh, Sun Yat-sen, but Sun Yat-sen doesn't really have an army to speak of. He's got some forces, but nothing that could ever possibly hope to uh, hold up to the Beiyang army. Like a well-supplied, organized, professional military. Mm-hmm. And so they decide, they start sending messengers back and forth. We got to figure this thing out. They decide that the thing that's best for the nation is that they're going to combine into one force. They're going to make it a Chinese Republic, but they're going to make Yuan Shikai the first prime minister rather than Sun Yat-sen, even though he's done all the work to figure out how to modernize right. this government. In return, Yuan Shikai will guarantee the abdication of the five-year-old emperor, and it will mean the end of the Qing dynasty. So that's what they do. Okay. There's a new government uh, it is under Yuan Shikai. It is uh, supposedly a republic. Um, it has a parliamentary system. Where Where is parliament seated at this point? It begins in uh, Nanjing, okay. but it'll eventually move to Beijing as one of the conditions of the Beiyang army uh, taking over because Yuan Shikai wants the capital closer to his center of military power. Right. And Beijing at this point would be the, or had been the imperial seat for some time uh, because that would so be the... So there's some iconography that goes along with it? Yeah, of course. Okay. Now, Nanjing had been the the capital at other po- uh, periods in, in Chinese history. I mean, it's, it's like the second largest city in in uh, China or something like that. It's it's massive and it's, it's acted as the capital a number of times. It's just that for, for Yuan Shikai, it was much more uh, a practical consideration than it was 
um, a symbolic one. Okay. The group that Sun Yat-sen ran was transformed into a new party. You'll know the name, I, I would imagine, uh, the Kuomintang. I'm not sure if you remember that one or KMT. Sometimes you'll see it. Yeah. Um, this is the, it means the Chinese nat- uh, national party and they form um, the majority of the government, even though Yuan is the, uh, is the prime minister. And from the get go, there is um, tension between the two groups. In so is there like an electorate, uh, an election at this point or they're working towards an election they kind of just appoint, appoint representatives. Uh, yeah, because the the eventual goal is to have an election. Yes, but we just got through a very difficult civil war, a very fast civil war. We just got to get back to governing here. Right. And I can imagine as well, it would just like logistically speaking, doing an election for all of China would just it would take months and months and months of planning. Uh, yeah, I can only imagine. It's really interesting because very, very early into all of this, one of Sun Yat-sen's colleagues, uh, Song Jiaren, who was uh, responsible for founding the Kuomintang along with Sun Yat-sen, was assassinated. Okay. Uh, Just, uh, you know, it it had nothing to do with Yuan, though, definitely. He he fervently denied it in, uh, uh, in, in, in Parliament. Now, Yuan starts ignoring Parliament more and more. And between that and the assassination, which I would only imagine kind of backfires in purpose, when there is finally an election, um, the Kuomintang wins plurality of seats and the majority of the Senate seats. So they're in in strong position to actually rule China at this point. And Yuan just decides to kind of ignore it. There's some accusations come out in Parliament that Yuan offered Mongolia to the Russians straight up for uh, in return for border security. Just going to give him some Mongolia. And he responds to this by trying to drive out every single Kuomintang member by force from the parliament. Okay. Yeah. Remember how we just kind of founded a republic and it was all going to go fine? It's We're not kind going of so the, good. We're at the end of this experiment very quickly. When he tries to drive them out, several southern provinces just straight up rebel against the new government because they got into this whole thing on the assumption that Sun Yat-sen's system was going to work. And he's being physically removed from government. And this is known as the Second Revolution. It's it's uh, a really quick, really um, short battle, but it, it leads to Kuomintang defeat by government forces. Uh, Sun Yat-sen is driven out of the country. Uh, put into exile. And Yuan Shikai basically goes, we don't really need a parliament any- anymore, declares himself emperor. Okay, so we're back to square one. Yeah. Yuan Shikai is emperor for 83 days between 1915 and 1916. This reign is categorized by revolts, by threats, by um, his declining health. Uh, he gets very sick over this period. And more and more provincial leaders are just abandoning this Republican government. He's losing support all over the place. They're basically going like, maybe we just don't need a centralized government at all. Maybe we just go our own way from now on. Yuan dies uh, of his illness and uh, after at the end of this 83-day period, and no one really steps up to take his place. It's clear that what the people were looking for wasn't a Han emperor, which is what Yuan was trying to be. Right. He saw his role from the beginning of all of this as uh, a Han overthrow of the the, the um, uh, Manchurians, and that sort of the natural existence of China was to be a, under a strong emperor. Mm-hmm. He only kind of 
humored son to avoid and shorten uh, the the revolts that were going on, right? Right. He had the popular momentum behind him, and doesn't really matter how big your 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 army is. At a certain point, enough popular support is going to be too much uh, to to properly put down. So no one really steps into his place. I mean, people do step into his place. There are a few, you know, further leaders of the Bayang army, but there aren't going to be any more emperors. It leaves China fractured. It leaves China heavily divided between North and South and extremely vulnerable. And around this time, Sun travels to Paris and begins meeting with some of the uh, best and brightest uh, socialist minds of Europe. And I think this is a really great place to take a break because things are going to get real weird after this. Uh, so when we come back, we're going to talk about the Warlord era. We're back on HI101 here with Gary Hallman. All right. And we've been talking about uh, early 20th century China. I don't even know what to call any of this, man. It's it's very convoluted. Well, it's just such a complex thing. It's, you know... Mm-hmm. Again, you, you just risk generalizing things if you... Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason this is going to three parts. Yep. Um, we are sitting here with a, a dead emperor. We're sitting here with a fractured country. We're sitting here with a, a former leader who's been completely exiled. Nobody's stepping up to the plate. Nobody's stepping up to the plate. This is known as the warlord era in Chinese history. I mean, it's one of many warlord eras, but um, usually it's it's specifically referring to the 20th century when you say that. I'm going to assume that this is not a harmonious, peaceful era. Not so much. This is really what this is, is a relic of that Taiping Rebellion, right? The, the, the rent has come due on all of those personally loyal uh, armies that were raised to fight that civil war. Because all of these leaders have really self-contained, relatively large armies that they can sort of protect their own area with. Well, enough to at least maintain control over their own fiefdom. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of an interesting uh, segment of history because as Yuan was building up to this uh, emperorship, he kind of dismantled pieces of government by ignoring the bureaucracy that's put into place that either was, you know, new under the uh, the Republic or was existing and co-opted by the Republic from the Empire by kind of ignoring all of those conventions and, and proclaiming himself in opposition to the Republic. He didn't really provide any alternatives just for the day to day governance of all of these areas. Which must have been, you know, you had spoken earlier about how that's kind of like what their strength was as a nation. So Mm -hmm. that must have been very off-putting for, you know, the everyday rank and file citizen. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that that is a very Confucian idea, this idea of the the balance between bureaucracy and and military. And and it's it's interesting because uh, self-prophesying or not, that's exactly what happens is the military steps in to take over all of those duties. And what you're left with is rather than any one specific power looking to take over all of China, what you get is all these little tiny areas that are controlled by these individual warlords who are looking more than anything um, to secure their own region. And that's it. They're not looking to expand. If any of them get big enough to start maybe getting some ideas, a couple of other warlords will ally together just long enough to take them down and then fall to infighting among themselves and we're back to square one. Right. 
it would be wrong to call it a static era in terms of movement between these powers because that's not exactly true but the net effect of it is more or less static Mm -hmm. what's more a lot of these warlords you know some of them are are kind of the equivalent of nobility they're they're looking to look after lands that their family has looked after for generations others of them are barely bigger than you know they're, they're really better than uh, uh mercenaries they're um people who had just enough uh, uh men under them to control a region and that's enough for legitimacy at this point in time because what else is there might makes right kind of situation absolutely this is also a situation that is uh extremely um vulnerable to foreign influence because um we know for a fact that happened especially interference from japan the main warlord that was in charge of manchuria we're back to talking about manchuria again uh zhang Zhuolin was almost openly working for japan in this era okay. he fundamentally cut off manchuria from the rest of china it was practically an independent uh state at this point and was doing things like uh trading openly with japan at favorable costs while refusing to trade with the rest of china accepting uh uh, material help from japan weapons and and and, uh uh, clothing things like that but yeah he he was essentially a bandit when all of this so has there started to be kind of increased japanese military activity going on in china because i'm assuming at this point like they've been in korea for quite some time Mm mm-hmm Yes, that's so. true. Well, let's let's talk quick about that timeline. Basically, what's happened is that over the last several decades, through the the Meiji Restoration, they've been uh, they've been modernizing, and one of the things that they've really had their eye on is the potential expansion of Japan's sphere of influence across the Pacific. One thing that's kind of difficult about running an empire from Japan is that there's certain natural resources that japan isn't terribly rich in manchuria has all of them in spades that's the real reason that we're talking about manchuria as being so valuable i mean part of it is the port access sure but um it has so much coal and so much metal trees even you know for wood like that's that's it's it's all there It's, it's everything that japan isn't terribly rich in and you know, as we get closer to World War II, yeah, we're going to talk about going down into uh, the Philippines and Indonesia and things like that for um, for rubber, for example, or for oil. But a lot of those fundamentals are right there in, in Manchuria, and it's incredibly uh, enticing for them. So this increased desire for uh, expansion of that political uh, uh, sphere of influence more or less has to include... Uh, resource uh, expansion as well and and manchuria is the most obvious way to go on that in this era they're quite uh, japan is is quite close with britain actually it's it's not terribly overt a lot of it is kind of in in secret treaties that have come to light since for example we find out that in the in the war between them and, and russia uh, sorry between japan and russia uh the the british certainly allowed passage of their uh, or sorry, certainly delayed Russian passage of ships to give the Japanese more chance to get ready. Like there is, there's a fairly tight relationship there. Well, and I know there's a, at this point, there's a lot of military advisors mm-hmm. 
kind of providing training and oversight and yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's quite a bit of aid coming from Britain in particular, but from, from another, uh, from a number of, uh, Jap- uh, uh, European powers. So they've got Zhang working in Manchuria at, at this point in time, Manchuria has about 3% of the population of China. It has about 90% of its heavy industry. So this is the economic powerhouse of the, of the country. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and it's it's very much a change from from previously, where the economic power was coming from things like you know, luxury goods mainly. It's it's this shift that has caused Japan to become so interested in separating it off from the rest of China to make it uh, easier to take over. But it's also meant that Russia has its eyes on it as well. Fortunately, Russia is in no uh, is in no shape whatsoever to try and take over Manchuria militarily. They have too much going on on their western borders, but it leaves Japan uh, free to kind of run roughshod over the whole thing. So in the wake of uh, Yuan's death, the Beiyang army splits. And while someone from the Beiyang army continues to have control over Beijing throughout this warlord era, who exactly that's going to be is going to rotate out as the Beiyang army fights with other portions of itself for control of the city. The interesting thing here, kind of internationally speaking, is that the international community basically only recognizes China as a single entity, despite all of this fracturing. And whoever holds control militarily of Beijing speaks for China internationally on really important things. For example, World War One, right, which is coming up in a couple of years here. You know, through, throughout this era, on on one hand, you have all of these uh, warlords with these petty little squabbles. On the other hand, there's big things going on internationally that really mattered. Um, the, the, the World War I is, is the biggest one by far. Uh, China actually enters World War I in 1917 uh, on the side of uh, Britain and France, uh, the Entente side. The main reason for that actually is that one of those ports that's holding over from those uh, unequal treaties actually still belongs to Germany, has for decades. Um, and they're hopeful that if they support Britain and France in the war against Germany, when all of this is said and done, they'll be able to take that port back from the Germans. Right. It kind of blows up in their face a little bit, though, because at Versailles, while the powers talk a lot about things like self-determination and, uh, you know, stuff like that, when they're handing well, out they, power to... They mean for the, you know, Western yeah. peoples. Oh, exactly. That's the issue there. Now, they are somewhat harsh to Japan, who was also fighting on the, the uh, Entente side. There was a bunch of uh, uh, naval action, actually, in the uh, in the Pacific Ocean between uh, Japan and Germany, which doesn't really get talked about all that much, because it doesn't really come to that much, but mm-hmm. still interesting to hear about. In return for that military aid, at Versailles, decided to give that port, Shandong, to Japan rather than back to China. Uh-oh. They've been burned so many times by European powers, but this one stung. What are they going to do? This one stung, I think, more than most because there was this sort of attempt to play on their terms, and it just didn't work out. This this loss of Shandong to Japan is a major turning point in all of this because. It's actually, it, it turns into what's known as the May 4th movement. It leads to mass protests in Beijing. They're basically going, okay, well, you got us into this war. And yeah, we didn't really, you know, it's, it, we're no France in any of this. Like we aren't, you know, we insulting the earth players, for, for yeah. generations here, but we were supposed to get this port back and you couldn't even pull that off. 
what are you guys doing? This is a failure to govern. And remember what we said about social harmony. You don't do that until there is a significant breakdown in one portion of the social contract, right? It's a real turning point for um, the Beiyang army's ability to govern and, and the public's perception of their worthiness to lead China. Uh, it leads to these mass protests. It uh, turns into this rejection of Western symbols or uh, Western systems uh, as as a solution. It turns into an anti-republican movement uh, in a lot of ways. They're going, well, what's what's replacing one uh, uh, you know terrible European system uh, under colonialism with another Euro- uh, European system? Uh, of republicanism if that doesn't even help us get out from under their so thumb. So this is kind of like a second boxer revolution. In a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's very populist, which is not something you see a lot in China, which makes it especially notable. It's also notable because just a couple of years later, the Communist Party of China is founded in 1921. There's only 50 members at its uh, at its inception, but they all to a person cite these May 4th movements as one of the main reasons that they decided to found this party. That was the moment that they rejected um, democracy as the future of China. Now, it's important to remember again for context that communism in Russia is brand new at this point. It's barely started. That's 1917 that that goes into place. And it's very like fresh and new. And you don't really have a lot of perspective as to sort of the negatives that it's going to bring uh, that, that we normally associate with, you know, Soviet rule. Yeah, now. It's still too new to see. What they do know, though, is that as soon as the, the Bolshevik revolution uh, finishes, there's a massive civil war in Russia, except it's a civil war that involves a lot of Russians on the Bolshevik side and a lot of foreign powers supporting the uh, Tsarist side. And it's kind of like maybe the world doesn't want them to go communist and maybe if all those european powers who have been oppressing china for the last half century don't want this thing so badly maybe it's something worth considering right don't poke the bear well i mean if if they're so if they're so against it what are they afraid of oh i see so it's the opposite so that makes it more attractive yes okay yeah yeah if 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 they're so upset by the idea of communism is it because communism will be bad for them? Is that maybe a thing that would be good for us? Worth considering. There's this thing that seems like it's really kind of nitpicky about um, specifically the Bolsheviks in the revolution, but we should uh, we should know it for our story going forward. There's a couple of different philosophies in this period of time as to how communism is going to spread through the world. You can kind of imagine it as like a, a four-quadrant uh, chart. Okay. On one side, it's, is the revolution going to happen uh, organically, or is violent revolution going to spur the communist revolution? So do people up, uh, rise up against it militarily? Like, do um, agent provocateurs cause the revolution and, and help guide people into communism? Or do we just wait for the, the workers to spontaneously, like, rise up and embrace communism as a system? On the other quadrant or on the other axis, you have do we establish communism perfectly in a society in one country, thereby acting as a beacon to the rest of the world? Or do we attempt to actively spread communism to as many places in the world as possible to try and get a worldwide communist revolution? Okay. The Bolsheviks fall under the category of 
we must spur revolution through uh, uh, military action and we should cause communism to uh, begin throughout the entire world. There are lots of other philosophies that are in play in, in Russia, even at this point in time. Okay. Um, but that's where the ruling party, the Bolsheviks, come down on all of this. And so they found, and I know, I know this sounds like it's a massive detour, but it's really important. They found something that's called the, com- the Comintern, uh, Communist International. And it is purported to be this international body of workers representing the people in this communist revolution. But in practicality, what it is, is a board of, well, it's, it's a branch of the Russian government that its main purpose is to start planting seeds of communism elsewhere throughout the world. Let's get that revolution rolling everywhere else. Right. Let's create this communist brotherhood workers of the world unite emphasis on world Um, so are they providing like monetary support funny you should ask the kuomintang starts openly associating with the communist party of china soon after its founding remember uh sun yat-sen had spent some time in paris meeting with these people learning from these people and what he decided was maybe they're right about some of this stuff democracy didn't go so well let's try let's try something different and there's a lot of arguments as to exactly where Sun Yat-sen would fall on a um, spectrum between democracy Socialist and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. communist. It's such a huge spectrum, right? Right, exactly. And and because he changes his mind throughout his life and all of that, this is why you get a man who both you know Taiwan and the uh, People's Republic of China both claim as uh, founding fathers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's how that works. He's gotten tight enough with them that he's going, well, maybe some of these socialist ideas are a good idea. Remember the property of, of welfare uh, as one of the three pill- pillars of government. Well, maybe the government does, do, doesn't does just make sure that you're not starving on the streets. Maybe they look after. Find uh, you a job. Find you. Every aspect of yeah. a society. Maybe that's what governance means. Maybe national unity comes from uh, a essentially forced government uh, equality among all people. Maybe that's good for national unity. Well, and it I mean, I've got no background, but it seems to me like a people who are used to a system of strong administrators as being a core part of the society, like this would seem predisposed to accepting this level of control over day-to-day life. Well, not just that, but also the social social harmony right, aspect, right? right? The, the ability to, um, you know, th- this this rugged individualism of, of Europe isn't really a, a, a stumbling block here. Everyone it's, can get on board. Right. It's good for everybody. That's great. I'm, I'm in for it. So it's not just that he was going, hey, maybe communism is cool and I should get on board. It's also that he knows about the common turn and he believes that Number one, he knows that the Kuomintang needs political allies. Last time they were elected, everything went very terribly. Right. Number two, he believes that political unification in this warlord era is not possible through just like, you know, a robust exchange of ideas. They're not going to debate them their, their way into power. So he believes that it's not going to be possible without military invasion of the north. He needs to take over the Beiyang army. It's right. not going to happen otherwise. So he believed that if he became close enough with the Communist Party of China, he'd be able to leverage that aid that you asked about a couple of minutes ago from the Comintern, not just financially, but also for training. 
Okay, so to get military advisors down to train a new army. Because the Comintern was willing to offer that as long as you were planning to use that army in a communist overthrow. Gotcha. Now, this isn't without resistance within the Kuomintang. Not everyone is socialist. This party was founded on Republican ideals. Right. That being said, Sun Yat-sen was such a strong leading force in this, and the sheer practicality of all of this was so hard to argue against that this is the route that the Kuomintang takes in this era. They decide to start drawing on that help from uh, the Comintern. So even if they're not convinced, they're kind of looking at it as, well, it's better than where we are right now. Well, and the communists are a, a significant minority in the Kuomintang. Okay. There's certainly this hope that they will convince everybody else to to join in but they're not seen as a real threat at this point history some kind sometimes has a bit of a sick sense of humor on some of this stuff and uh sun yat sen ends up dying of cancer before any of this comes to fruition so he was alive long enough to see uh the beginnings of military academies founded in the in the south he saw armies being raised but nothing ever really came of it while he was still alive died uh, 12th of March, 1925. And what I find kind of interesting about Sun Yat-sen and uh, his successor, a younger man named uh, Chiang Kai-shek, is the ways in which they kind of mirror Lenin and Stalin in certain ways. This idea of, you know, this this, uh, founding father, very idealistic, but didn't quite see the whole thing come to fruition. Ideological purity, and and then you've got the... The other side of the coin? Militaristic authoritarian successor coming in and executing on all of these ideas in ways that you kind of wonder if the uh, founder ever really intended them those ways, even though he's invoking that founder's name. Mm -hmm. Chiang Kai-shek had been involved in the Kuomintang uh, Kuomintang for quite some time. Uh, There was a brief power struggle after Sun Yat-sen's death, but he came out on top. And he was decidedly right-wing within the party. He had actually spent some time in Russia under the new Bolshevik government. Uh, Sun Yat-sen had sent him there on basically a fact-finding mission and didn't like what he had seen. He didn't feel that the system was nearly as shiny as they were making it out to be. He saw a lot of significant just logistical issues. Right. Um, some of which I suppose could be attributed to the fact that it was extremely new. No one had actually done this before and they were figuring it out by the seat well, of their yeah, pants. Turning out, turns out social planning an entire society is a lot of work. Not only that, but doing it for a society that the, the ruling system was not ever really intended for. I mean, if you ever read any Marx or Engels, they were expecting the revolution to come in Britain, maybe Germany, somewhere extremely industrialized. Not a place that took up a quarter of the world. Yeah, and had a very, very sparse population. Right. Um, yeah, they, they were expecting a, a, a dense urban uh, working class to be the ones that rose up, not um, disaffected, often illiterate peasants. peasants. farmers, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre little synthesis, but we're not talking about Russia today. We're talking about China. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek didn't think it was going to work in China. Uh, He just didn't really see it. Now, what he did see was a large, well-trained Western-style army ready to go. And he went, I think it's time. Let's do this thing. He turns around and uh, takes takes this army and starts marching north. It's known as the Northern Expedition. Now, before he goes, he kind of cracks down a little bit on... 
uh, communist influence in the Kuomintang. Anyone who was sort of in a position of power, he did his best to kind of box them out of any real decision-making right. uh, positions as much as possible, but didn't entirely uh, succeed. And communist leadership within the party didn't particularly appreciate what was going on here. Um, I, I should clarify, basically what's happening here is anyone who was in the Communist Party of China was allowed to join the Kuomintang, but not every Kuomintang member was a communist, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. Just making sure we're all good here because... All clear. Good enough. The communist members of the Kuomintang felt, I think, understandably so, uh, quite betrayed by all of this. In, in their eyes, what had happened here was that their ideals, their passions, their beliefs about the future of China had built something unprecedented, which was a, an army large enough to actually take on the Beiyang army. Now, from a top-down perspective, what's really happening here is the Soviets are seeing a, an opportunity to overthrow um, a vulnerable power on their borders and potentially expand quite a bit further. They had spent a, a portion of this warlord era scrapping on the, the northwest borders of, of China against warlords who really couldn't hold them off. But, right. you, you know, they, they would love some of that territory. Absolutely. But, you know, for, for these on the ground members of the Communist Party of China, this is their army. They built this. Yeah, it was handed to them, but they built it. And it's being taken away from them by someone who doesn't share their beliefs, that doesn't share their ideals, and who's planning on taking this from them and using it to his own ends to establish a system that they are fundamentally ideologically against. Yeah, they're upset. So there's a little bit of conflict within the party, to yeah, say the least. Yeah, of course they're upset. Yeah. Why wouldn't they be upset? They try... Um, the Northern Expedition is this series of little hops of taking over the next warlord, and then that warlord kind of swearing fealty to them and adding their armies to them. And this army that starts off at about a hundred thousand is going to end at about a million. Wow. That escalated quickly. Absolutely. And we're not going to talk about every single one of these, but we're going to talk about a couple primarily in, um, April of 1927, uh, in Shanghai, the communist members of the Kuomintang essentially attempt a coup of Chiang Kai-shek. Now, it's not a violent one. They're, they're not attempting to assassinate him. They're attempting to basically vote him out of power. They're attempting to vote their own people in. So it's a political coup. Yes. Okay. Chiang Kai-shek reacts apolitically. <laughs> he reacts violently. Yeah. Um, he, he violently uh, ejects all uh, communist elements within the Kuomintang. Uh, there's a massacre of over 3,000 people, all members of the Communist Party. The Communist Party is nearly wiped out at this point. Wow. Wow. Uh, they lose all relevance politically. With the Shanghai Massacre, the uh, army that was built by Comintern influence becomes explicitly uh, uh, Republican. A Republican army. It is uh, personally devoted to Chiang Kai-shek. It is no longer associated with communism in any way, shape, or form. The other one that I want to talk about is when they got to Shandong province, which, if you'll remember, is the one that uh, currently belongs to Japan. Uh, after being given it through the Treaty of Versailles after World War One, used to be German territory. Right. The major city there, Jinan, the Northern Expedition uh, encircled Jinan, but discovered that it was going to be too difficult to take. As soon as they marched into the province, uh, Japan started 
a massive outcry. They called it a foreign invasion. They called it an outrage. They threatened to uh, invade China as a consequence. And after a little bit of time considering trying to take Jinan by force, Chiang Kai-shek realized that he was leaving himself too exposed from the Beiyang army and that it was probably more prudent to pick on one person at a time. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he needed to secure, he was attempting to unite a country. This is a, uh, you know, he's seeing this as a great patriotic war. He's not looking to draw foreign powers into this. And if he has to come back for Jinan, so be it. Uh, he leaves and as retribution for this attempted siege, which, you know, all told maybe a couple of dozen Japanese soldiers were killed, over 2,000 Chinese civilians were killed uh, by uh, Japanese forces. Oh. Like in the in the province? Yes. Wow. They were attempting to send a message. They succeeded. Uh, it is a, a massive tragedy. Do you remember Zhang Zhuolin, the warlord who had been uh, keeping Manchuria and trading with Japan? Basically and... under China, er, Japanese control? Yeah, exactly. He happened to be in uh, control of uh, Beijing at this point in time as well. He owned, uh, he held enough of Manchuria that Beijing was in his sphere of influence. He was getting ready to launch a defense of Beijing uh, with, with uh, the Northern Expedition coming towards the city. It was basically believe that once they managed to take Beijing, that should be the end of it. So that's kind of the final push of this expedition. Japan, upset about the Shandong incident, explicitly offers military support to Zhang. But it's really, it's, it's kind of interesting because what ends up happening here is Zhang's pride gets the better of him for like the first time in his life because the Chinese population begins blaming him for what happened in Jinan starts blaming him for the massacre that occurred there, saying, you're associated with these people, you're in charge of this region, you could have stopped this, you could have talked to them, you talk to them all the time, you work with them all the time, and right. this is your fault. And Zhang's going, I'm not, like, I'm not a puppet, right? I can do what I want, I'm Chinese, I'm not Japanese, this isn't, that. that's a different, that's a whole different situation, I wasn't involved. And he gets so upset about being linked to Jinan that he decides to reject Japanese military support for the defense of Beijing out of pride, essentially, to basically show them, no, see, I'm, I'm, I'm we're not, not a puppet. We're not You're one the of puppet. the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pride move. And realizing that the math, realizing that without their support, he's never going to be able to keep Beijing. He attempts to flee the region, and he's actually assassinated by Japanese operatives for denying that help. His train is blown up with a bomb. Ugh. So it just goes to show just how deep Japan has their, you know, tendrils into Manchuria at this point in time. They're very, very interested in this in this area. I think a lot of times when we talk about um, the association between the two, it's its in the context of, of World War II. I mean, ignoring the fact that the, the invasion starts in, lead up to this. in 1937, so it's actually pre-World War II. But yeah, it's, it's been going on for decades before this. So this would be the Black Dragon Society? Who, uh, at this uh, point, no, but yeah, it's, it's, the, it's definitely the successors of that initiative. Okay. Um, no, they've been, they've been trying, you know, I always thought it was weird that all of a sudden in 1930 they decide, well, how about Manchuria now? No, that's just you know, poor information coming my way. 
by that uh, time, they very much already consider it part of their sphere of influence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Zhang's uh, son takes over his his army. Um, uh, Zhang Shuliang. Uh, uh, I don't know if I got that one right. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a brief uh, battle at Beijing, but it's taken June 6th of 1928 by the Northern Expedition. And as uh, as a consequence, uh, Zhang Shulang uh, pledges to the Nanjing uh, uh, government. That's okay. that's where Chiang Kai Shek was was uh, based. That's where uh, Sun Yat Sen had had kind of reestablished himself when he came back to China. And um, with that pledge to Nanjing, uh, China is reunited. And everything's fine from here on out, right? Um, and everything was great. I think, I think here's a really good place to stop because what I want to do with these three parts is um, we, we've covered a lot of the stuff uh, in terms of the um, setting the stage, yeah, if the the fall of the imperial system, the uh, early civil war, the warlord era, um, we're in a really good place to understand what I want to talk about in part two, which is perceived stability of what's known as the Nanjing Decade, where uh, you know this Repu- uh, this republican government has control of China, sort of with an asterisk, uh, and then move into World War Two. Uh, the war with Japan and uh, the beginnings of the resurgence of the Communist Party, and then part three we'll talk about sort of the aftermath of that 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 rebellion. We'll talk about um, the association with the Soviets. We'll talk about the Cultural Revolution. We'll talk about uh, the Great Leap Forward. Um, all of that stuff that's uh, that's usually um, associated with the Chinese Communist Revolution. So that's the general plan. We'll see how well we can stick to it. But let's call it there for part one. All right. Any questions so far? Uh, first impressions. What do you think? Well, I, I just I think it's interesting, um, you know, to see just how much foreign influence at this point. And it's for me, it's starting to set the stage of even you look at modern day China and just how this must have played such a deep role into the national psyche, mm-hmm. even, you know, a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. um, Western influence, the utter failure of Western style democracy and kind of where it got them. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's not something that is, it, it was something that was tried and wholesale rejected as something that doesn't work. Right. And, uh, but in a lot of ways rejected uh, in a lot of ways didn't work because of that same foreign influence that they've right. been dealing with all along. They discovered that it doesn't make them immune to that, that it's not the system itself, that it's actually that foreign uh, involvement that's causing these problems for them. Yeah, it's not it's not about republicanism versus communism. It's about, you know, foreign powers just want a weak government to mm-hmm. be able to take advantage of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a there's a term I, I've. You know what? I'll, I'll look it up for the, for uh, the next part. I'm gonna get this wrong, but it's it's something it, it's something along the lines of the embarrassing century or something like that that China uses to refer to this time between uh, the Opium Wars and uh, uh, the the Communist Revolution in the in the 40s. And they talk about it as being embarrassing because you know how, how it feels like once a week you get a. a newspaper article where it's kind of like you know china on the rise or whatever and it's saying like they've always been up there they've always been up there there's there's a there's a brief embarrassing century in their three thousand year long history where they weren't on top uh through uh, you know a lot of very complicated factors and 
where we are right now in the story is in the, in, in the thick of that embarrassing century where they're just trying to extricate themselves from all of these foreign powers that have knocked them down a couple of pegs. They're trying to get back where they feel that they belong, where they have been for millennia. Right. And it's, it's, a, really, it's a really interesting spot because you get this really strange mix of uh, sort of um, despair, the sense that like, nothing's working like what we need to make changes and also the sense of well we got to get back where we were like we've always been there we'll have no problems getting back we just have to do something different we just need to persevere and those two things working together are causing rapid and and often violent changes and i don't necessarily mean violent in the sense of uh you know uh bloody although there is a lot of that but also it's systemically violent you know, they're, they're making these massive changes on a really quick time scale, and you can see them just trying to figure out how to get back to where they were. Well, and it, it's interesting for me as well to kind of take a look at, you know, this this period in human history is really, uh, you know, the concept of nationalism mm-hmm. and how that affects societies in general. It affects everybody so different. Like you look at, you know, just, just take Japan mm-hmm. and China. Yep. You know, obviously two very different and distinct cultures. Yeah, of course. But, you know, still loosely, a lot more culturally similar than Western powers mm-hmm. and wildly different outcomes. Yes. With, uh, with the experiment of nationalism and just how China being a place that is so ethnically diverse. Yes. How that makes it, you know, this, this story to me kind of, it, it says it's a little bit more difficult to run a nationalist experiment when you're for everybody else nationalism and ethnicity is kind of the same thing which is why you see that that uh push towards nationalism with uh sun yat sen right um one of the things we didn't talk about though is is one of the um one of the flags that he proposes for the new republic of china is um what's what's known as a five colored flag so you have a a color for uh the uh han a color for the manchu a color for the Tibetans, a color for the Mongolians, and a color for kind of everybody else. Uh, it's it's the other. It's, it's well, it's the group. It's the group specifically referring to the the Western Chinese uh, Muslim uh, groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this attempt, though, that you know, yeah, we're different, but like we need to combine together into one China, and the strength of that one China narrative through to this day, right? Um, it, it has a very different connotation, obviously, uh, the way that it's being used now. But this this concept of like national unity is key to their success as a nation. It goes back partially to the, the the ethnic diversity that you're talking about there, also partially to the fragmentation of the warlord era. Right? That's not working for them. Mm-hmm. It only opens them up to exploitation by outside powers. Well, and it kind of explains some of the justifications for some of the modern day things, where you know. You know, you look at Tibet, it's mm-hmm. it's very sparsely populated, mm-hmm. particularly mountainous, yep. not a lot of resource rich area. Why why is it so important and take up so much oxygen within yeah. the narrative? Yeah. You know, you can kind of understand, well, you know, it's it's going back to a time when China was fragmented. Well, this is where Tibet as a, a, an independent nation comes from. I mean, we don't have time to get into all of it, but the warlord era, that's yeah. that's where that comes from. Um, it, it becomes independent in that era. I, I yeah, the, this this obsession with putting them back together um, is, is so so strong. 
but anyway, we should leave some of this for uh, the next, next time. time. Yeah. Uh, we can't we can't go over all the analysis this time. Um, so yeah, when we come back next time, we'll talk about the Nanjing Decade and then start getting into the Second Sino-Japanese War, also known as World War II. All right, sounds good. The success of the Northern Expedition closed the most unstable aspects of the fragmented warlord era, but things were anything but peaceful. Semi-independent provinces still stood in opposition to the Nanjing government. The remnants of the Communist Party were plotting revenge for their betrayal at Shanghai. And Japan still really wanted Manchuria. Next time on HI101, we'll see how the Nanjing government's failure to handle all three of these issues competently will lead to disaster. I don't know yet when that episode will be up, so I won't make any promises here, but it'll be in your feed as soon as it's ready. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.